All right, Genesis chapter 26 is where we pick back up this evening. At this point in our study, remember Abraham uh, has now died. He and Sarah have passed off the scene, and our our focus kind of now shifts to the next couple in this uh, patriarchal uh, family, uh, to Isaac and Rebekah. We saw the servant go out as Abraham sent him to find a wife for Isaac, Abraham's son, the child of promise, and uh Isaac now married to Rebecca at 40 years old, and Rebecca struggling with some of the same problem that uh, Abraham and Sarah did with barrenness, and Isaac pleading with the Lord, it seems, for almost 20 years, pleading and asking really for nothing other than just God's promise to be fulfilled, because uh, it was common understanding that the promise of God the uh, promise, the messianic promise, was with Isaac, and in order for that to be fulfilled, they had to have children. So, in essence, as she was experiencing barrenness, and as Isaac began to plead for her, uh, he was simply pleading in line with the will of God, but yet for 20 years, pleading, no results, no evidence, but pleading that God would just fulfill his promise and allow her to conceive so that the promises of God might begin to be fulfilled, and God, as he often does, uh, did above and beyond uh, what Isaac was even asking or thinking for. He was pleading for a child, and remember, God blessed Rebekah with twins, uh, and we saw there in the end of chapter 25 how she had these two twins struggling within her womb, and then, of course, this prophecy we saw in chapter 25 verse 23, where she was informed that two different peoples would be separated from her body, um, two different nations in essence, Esau and Isaac, uh, excuse me, Esau and Jacob would be born, the two sons. And God gave this specific prophecy, which is important as we move forward into the chapters ahead, where uh, Isaac and Rebekah received this message from the Lord regarding the prophecy of their children there in verse 23 of chapter 25 that one people shall be stronger than the other and the key and the older shall serve the younger again God reversing the natural order it was cultural always that the younger would always serve the firstborn that was just common practice that was what cultural but God doesn't always work according to uh, cultural norms and God reverses the natural order and God puts his calling on the younger of the two sons, and he has the prerogative to do that. He's God, and he can pick and call and ordain and use whoever he wants to. It doesn't matter to him uh, someone's age or ability or those kind of things. What matters is the call of God. So this family knew very clearly that the younger son, Jacob, was the one upon whom God's calling was upon, whom the blessing would fall to, that he would inherit the blessing of God, and through his descendants, ultimately, that uh, you know, blessing that God gave to Abraham's line would continue on. And it's important to remember that because no doubt Isaac knows this, Rebekah knows this, and certainly uh, Jacob and Esau become aware of this probably at some point as well. And we saw as the events unfolded, there seemed to be this kinship that developed between Isaac and Esau and as well this kinship that developed between Rebekah and Jacob and remember, it says that Esau was a man of the field. He was a hunter, and as he was that type of personality, which nothing wrong with that, by the same token, he also tended to be someone who was a very sensual man, who really didn't seem to have any interest uh, in the things of the Spirit of God. And because of that, uh, the birthright, which should have been his, again, by natural design, to take on the patriarchal responsibilities for the family, to be the spiritual leader of the family once his father died. Remember when he came in after hunting one day, it says that Jacob was there making a stew, and he said, hey, I'm starving, give me that stew. And Jacob convinces him to sell his birthright really for one morsel of food, for one bowl of stew or chili. And it tells us at the end of the chapter there, that Esau despised his birthright. That is, he was a man who only cared about temporary, immediate fulfillment, satisfying his own sensual desires. He had no interest in the things of God or the things of the Spirit. And for one quick meal, he forsook his birthright, and he forsook the thing that should have been a great privilege and blessing and responsibility in his life. So we left off with that event happening between the two brothers. Chapter 26 now takes us into a chapter, really the only chapter we have in the Bible that gives us some extended description of some of the life of Isaac, their father. 
as we then get really other uh, indications more of Jacob's life as the story goes further on. But chapter 26 really focuses on Isaac as it begins by telling us in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. And the Holy Spirit points out to us, besides the first famine, that was in the days of Abraham. So if you remember about a hundred years prior, in the days of Abraham, when he first came into the land of promise, a famine struck then. And now it's been at least probably somewhere, again, chronologically to about a hundred years later. And the Holy Spirit wants to differentiate for us. And he reminds us that this famine wasn't the same thing that was lingering, but it was a new famine. It was a new season of difficulty, of drought, of dryness. And again, remember, in that culture, uh, unlike maybe in some of the experiences today where a famine might strike a land, uh, it was much more difficult to cope with famine in those days. Uh, They didn't have the ability to transfer food from one location to another location to help maybe kind of sustain people in a time of famine. So famine was a tremendous threat to survival. It usually was coupled with drought, and it, it really jeopardized and threatened the survival of a people. And Isaac now finds himself, just like his father dealt with sort of a a difficult, tragic season in his life, he now finds himself facing his own life difficulty. A famine strikes in his days, and apparently it became pretty severe during his time, and he was struggling to survive there in the land of Canaan because of this famine. And it says, Isaac therefore went to Abimelech, and again, that's a title, not necessarily a name, like Pharaoh. We see different Abimelechs uh, of the Philistines. It seems to be more of a title rather than a name of a person. Uh, Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. So, Thinking probably, again, the Philistine territory is still in what would be the land of Canaan, the land of promise, but more over toward the seacoast, if you know where the Philistine territory is geographically. And Isaac, as things got more and more severe, probably came to the point where he thought to himself, you know what, better chance maybe of survival if I go closer to the seacoast, I'm a little bit more near some water sources, maybe I might be able to sustain myself and my family and all my possessions If I go over to that area, so he now travels over to the Philistine territory where there is some, again, familiarity because Abraham had been in that area before as well in years prior and had established some relations between them as people groups. So he now moves to that area because of this famine. And then verse 2 tells us that God intervenes and reveals himself to Isaac to speak something to Isaac, apparently, that was very critical for him to hear. Verse 2 tells us that then, as a result of this famine and this move over to Philistine territory, then the Lord appeared to him and said, notice, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands, And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, that indication, again, of the messianic promise that through the seed of Israel, uh, the line of Jesus Christ and all the nations of the earth being blessed through Jesus himself. Verse 5, he says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. So as Isaac goes over to Philistine territory during this time of famine, he makes one move over toward the seacoast, and when you look at God sort of, it says, appearing to him, that is, he gets a revelation from the Lord, like his father Abraham on occasions where he received a powerful revelation from God and God spoke to him in a real personal way. At this point, there's a need for sort of God to cause an intervention, a supernatural revelation to Isaac himself as a man that he might hear instruction from God that was critical. And not only do we see in these verses the uh, reaffirmation and the confirming again of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac, but more important at the beginning of it, verse 2, the first thing God wanted to say to him in verse 2 was, Isaac, 
I see where you're at now, but do not go down to Egypt. Instead, live in the land of which I shall tell you. It seems that the thought must have been in Isaac's mind. You know what? It's not as easy here as well in Philistine territory, and it looks like things are getting more threatening, like it's not going to get any easier, and it seems that the thought must have been in his mind, because God wouldn't have said this in vain, maybe what I ought to do, what would be best, is to just go down to Egypt. And again, the reason being, typically Egypt was one of the best places to be during the time of a famine or a drought, because Egypt had a lot more rivers and natural tributaries and water sources. They didn't have to depend as much upon irrigation systems because they had, by layout of their land, a lot of water sources that other areas didn't have. So it made common sense. Hey, if you want to be safe, if you want to go somewhere where it would be easier to survive, then you know, do the thing that everybody else would do and go down to Egypt. Go to the place where it would be much easier to sustain yourself, to survive, and in essence, what that would become for Isaac was here he's faced with a famine, a difficulty, something that is threatening his life and the plan of God for his life. And Egypt was a great opportunity for him to simply take matters into his own hands and to make sure that things would work out for himself through the efforts of his own flesh and to go down to Egypt, just like his father Abraham, remember, did taking a detour for a season in his life where he stepped away from the plan of God for his life and went down to Egypt as well. And Isaac now seems to be tempted in the natural mindset and his own logical reasoning, as many of us are lots of times. And again, Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of the world and the world system. And a lot of times when we go through a difficulty or maybe a hard time, we are prone and tempted many times to think, you know what, this Christian thing is just... It worked out when things weren't hard. Uh, and, and, and this trusting God thing, well, that, was, that worked when everything was easy, but now things are getting a little challenging. And, and you know what? I, I, it just seems that if I go back and I work the systems of the world again and I just kind of apply the, you know, the, 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 the philosophies and practices and the ways that the world does, I mean, I got to do what I got to do. So that means I got to kind of take a little detour back and, and, and get back into the groove of the way the world does things. And, and we kind of take matters into our own hands and we do it as a result many times of fear. We do it as a result many a times of feeling like that we need to take care of things for ourselves. And typically when we do that, all we're doing is stepping outside of God's plan for our life. And we're taking a detour in a lack of faith and in an effort to sort of take matters into our own hands. And God speaks to Isaac, knowing maybe that Isaac is contemplating this before he acts upon it. God speaks to him and he says, Isaac, what you're about to do, don't. Do not go where you're about to go. And you know what? Sometimes in our lives, I think that's the Lord's word for us. Sometimes we are about to go after something or to go in a direction because we're taking matters into our own hands or we're feeling a compulsion or the pressure, our own logical reasoning. We're thinking, well, this is probably just the best thing to do because it doesn't seem there's any opportunity in this or it seems like things aren't going to work out and it's going to, and, and we in compulsion start to move in a direction and God says, do not go there. I see what you're thinking about, and I see where you're intending, and God says, don't. Don't go in that direction, whatever that may be for our life. He says, do not go there. Instead, God tells him, notice, verse 2, live in the land of which I shall tell you. Don't do what you're wanting to do. God says, I want you instead to go where I tell you to go. In other words, don't be self-led, be spirit-led. Be led by me, God says. I want you to be led and to go where I tell you to go, not where your fears are telling you to go, not where your peers and the world is telling you to go or where your own logic is telling you to go. God says, no, I want you to go where I'm telling you to go. In verse 3, that instruction was God said to him, dwell in this land. God says, don't go there. Dwell right where you are. Dwell in this land. Stay put, he's telling him. Right here in this land where you are, God was giving him a call to just remain, 
to remain, to stay rooted during the dry season, the famine, the difficulty. A lot of times, you know, when difficulty strikes, uh, we tend to think that that means, okay, well, how do I get out of this? I got to get out of this. Because things are getting difficult or this isn't working out or, or we have the fear of, you know, how anything, it just, it seems so dry and that there's just no opportunity and, and we're tempted to just respond and go, and God says, no, stay put. Psalm 37 says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. And there's a time where instead of just saying, how do I get, get out of this? God's saying, no, our prayer should be, Lord, what should I get out of this? Not how do I get out of it? How do I get out of this? This is not working. It's hard. And God says, no, how about what do I want you to get out of this? What lesson to trust me, to wait, to have faith, to stay put, to sink your, you know, a lot of times when drought happens, plants typically send roots further down searching for an alternate water source and their roots go deeper. And the same happens in our lives. You go through a hard time and you go through a dry season. And a lot of times if you stay put, and you don't just go where you're not supposed to go and you stay where God wants you to stay. A lot of times you'll send roots down spiritually in a way much deeper than you had previously. And God ultimately can do what he intends to do. Verse 3, he says, Isaac, dwell in this land. And look at the assurance. He says, and I'll be with you. You just stay put. My presence will be with you here. This is where I'm staying. If you want to go there, I'm not going there, he said. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that convinces me if God says, don't go to Egypt because I'm not going to Egypt. I want to stay where God's at. I don't want to go where God's not at. It may look like a great, well, I'll, I'll go over there and, and make it work for myself. God says, well, you can, but I'm not going over there. <laughs> I'm staying right here. God says, dwell in this land. Number one, I will be with you. And number two, he says, and I'll bless you. If you don't go where you're not supposed to go and stay where I want you to be, God says, I will bless you. There's no, there's no better place to be than right in the center of the will of God, the presence of God. And that's where God will prosper us. That's where God will bless us. And he blesses that life of obedience and faith. It's times when we just kind of wait on the Lord and trust him. He says, right here, this is where I'll bless you. This is where I'll bless you and multiply you, God says, and perform the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And here God says, I will multiply you and, and give you lands and so forth. So again, God's promise would be for him to remain that he might receive it right where he was. Verse five, interesting, God says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge. Interesting, God connects his promise to Abraham's life of obedience. In a sense, God is reminding Isaac in some ways, Isaac, my blessing will be upon your life because of your father Abraham's obedience. Again, pointing out how something that matters to God, it's very important to God that we have a life of obedience. And that life of obedience that marked Abraham was something which I find beautiful here. It ended up bringing benefit and blessing into the life of his son years later. You know, I tell you something. Our choices of obedience as parents, will have an effect that will bring about blessing in indirect and direct ways upon our children in ways many times that we may not look. Abraham's dead at this point. But yet his life of obedience with God is now having a direct effect upon his son years later down the road. And, and as a parent, man, our obedience to God, yes, personally, because of our relationship with the Lord, but our choices to be obedient to God, God will honor that. And it will bring blessing and cause blessing to come upon our children's lives as well. And ultimately, this beautiful picture of, of one man being blessed because of another. Isaac was blessed because of Abraham. And of course, it ultimately becomes a beautiful reminder of how, just like you and I, we are ultimately, as Christians, blessed because of the obedience of someone else, and that's Jesus. Because of Jesus' obedience and because Jesus did the will of the Father, you and I, because we're in Christ, we're in his grace in a place of favor, and we're blessed. Our lives are blessed simply because of the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Well, verse 7, interesting twist now to our story. Here's Isaac. I mean, he has this powerful experience with the Lord. The Lord appears to him. The Lord speaks to him personally, a direct word from the Lord. The Lord gives him promises and assurances 
you would think this guy would just be ready to just live, you know, on fire, error-free. And and look what happens in this next account, verse 7. Again, I appreciate the Bible's honesty because it shows us that you don't have to be perfect to experience God's blessing in your life because just like Abraham and Moses and David, Isaac wasn't a perfect man either. Look look what happens, verse 7. It says, as he's there in Gerar, the men of that place asked about his wife. And he said, can you believe this? She's my sister. (laughs) The apple doesn't far fall from the tree, does it? Isn't that interesting? She's my sister. For he was, notice, afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. So the guy did good in one sense. He realized his wife was gorgeous even in their latter years. So, you know, he gets an A plus for that. However, his being self-absorbed and being concerned more about his own welfare and what happens to him rather than his wife's welfare, he gets an F minus there right away here because he falls into the same very failure that his father Abraham falls into. Uh, Again, knowing the... The customs of the land, he understood there was a high respect for marriage, even in that ancient culture, to the level where, as we talked about those Abraham, they would not commit adultery because they respected marriage. So if they wanted your wife, they would just commit murder, and then they take your wife <laughs> because they didn't want to – I mean, they were too moral to commit adultery. So if we thought your wife's attractive, well, we, we won't steal her as your wife. We'll just have to kill you, and then she'll be a widow, and then we can take her and, and enter into a marriage with her. And he understood this was how a culture was and that his beautiful wife would be someone that Abimelech would probably want to take and uh, bring into his harem of, of wives and concubines. So out of fear, again, wanting to save his own hide – Again, the Bible tells us the fear of man is a snare, but those who trust the Lord shall be safe. And he doesn't trust the Lord. He lets fear of his own concern for himself motivate his choices, and he now tells a lie and says, she's my sister, so that, notice, they don't kill him. He puts his wife at risk, but he's trying to self-preserve his own life and his own situation. Always a, a major mistake as a husband when we do those kind of things in selfishness. But again, isn't it interesting, the tendencies? Isn't it amazing genetic tendencies? We see the apple don't fall far from the tree, and it is rather scary, but very statistically accurate, how many a times the sins of, uh, of the parents end up visiting the children. And again, let me just say, I don't believe in generational curses and all these kind of you know things that exist. However, I do think kids are like sponges, and they absorb stuff, and they see stuff. And the reality is, is genetics are a strong thing. And, and a lot of times the tendencies, the weaknesses, aspects of our personality, they tend to surface in our children. And this was a, an issue for Abraham, and very interesting, we see it now surfacing in Isaac, the same kind of tendency where he, in fear, is prone to lie and to kind of make some poor choices. And very interesting to see how he's doing the exact same thing. And again, I don't know, could it be very possible, again, Isaac heard the stories of what his father Abraham did. And I'm sure that Abraham said to him, but son, that was a really bad idea. And that was wrong, and I shouldn't have done that. And I put your mother at risk, and I got rebuked before a pagan king for doing this. But you see, the reality is this is children are observant. And when our children see us do disobedient things, make sinful choices, you know, do things that are clearly wrong and erroneous, what they tend to pick up more than anything else is a personal justification. Well, dad did it, and he got away with it. Well, mom did it, and I mean, yeah, it's But they got away with it, and it all worked out in the end. And see, we need to realize that the example we set before our children is powerful because their natural bent will always be not towards what's spiritual, but like a typical sinful human being, they will be bent towards compromise and their natural capacities and will tend to gravitate not towards what is right, but will tend to gravitate towards, well, 
hey, you did it, or you know, you used to drink alcohol, or you used to do this, or, or you lied once in a while, and, and it worked out for you. So, uh, and here, interesting, we see Isaac kind of in this same pattern, and of course, again, God's not partial. The same events unfold. Look at verse 8. Now, it came to pass... When he had been there a long time, and we don't know how long he was there in Philistine territory, keeping this lie going that this was his sister, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and he saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. You know, the old King James, interesting word here, it says that he, he was sporting with his wife so you know they're outside you know throwing frisbee or something you know but, but he, he he looks outside and he realizes hey if that's a brother and a sister that's wrong that's there's obvious that that is not his sister because there's some type of intimate romantic affection he's showing endearment the idea is probably you know caressing or kissing in some way where it was very clear as abimelech looked out the window and he catches Isaac and, and Rebecca engaging each other in romantic intimacy in some way, and he realizes, wait a minute, it says verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? What are you doing to me, he says. Isaac said to him, well, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Interesting. Here is a pagan king, and look at his perspective towards marriage, honoring marriage, and if it's not honored and tainted with or, or, or dishonored, the effect it can have upon a whole nation. Look what he says. He says, this is your wife... And he says, what are you doing? Somebody could have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. That is, on our nation. Interesting that this king, this leader, felt that to dishonor marriage would bring guilt onto the whole nation. And would to God that we would, as a, a, a nation, begin to realize again that as we're distorting marriage and perverting marriage and dishonoring marriage, the tremendous guilt that we're bringing on our nation before a God who instituted marriage as a sacred covenant between a male and a female, one man and, and one woman, and, and the marriage relationship being the real basis and fiber work to the family and ultimately to the society. And he says, what are you doing? You could have brought guilt, he says, on us, that is upon our nation. So Abimelech, verse 11, charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So he gives a severe warning. Look at verse 12. And then Isaac sowed in that land and he reaped in the same year a hundred Fold. So again, typically, Abraham, Isaac, the family, they, they've typically cared for animals. Here's the first mention in the Bible now of sowing seed of an agricultural type occupation. And maybe things weren't working out well with the shepherding because of the famine. But Isaac now chooses to take up as well, though he's a very wealthy man, his father Abraham conferred great wealth upon him. But yet he wasn't lazy, though he was wealthy. You see him still gainfully employing himself in work it says he sowed in the land he apparently gets a parcel of field of, of land he sows seed and it says in verse 12 that he reaped notice in the same year a hundredfold now that's a pretty good return that's a pretty good crop to get a hundredfold return for sowing seed is quite a prosperous return on your uh, sowing of seed and verse 12 says, And the Lord blessed him, and the man began to prosper, and he continued prospering until, the Holy Spirit says, he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so that the Philistines, notice because of his prosperity, they began to envy him. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this, I appreciate his industriousness and his responsibility to sow seed in the land and to work. 
But it's a little bit challenging for me, having just read verse 7 through 11 and what he did, this incredible lie, this major blunder, as he lived in disobedience for quite some time, puts his wife in jeopardy, you know, lives in, in, in an immoral cover-up, and, and these kind of things. He gets rebuked by a pagan king, and then to read in the next verse... He sowed, and in the same year, he receives a hundredfold return, and the Lord blessed him, prospered it, continued the prosper, and became very prosperous. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's up with that? Well, I only have one word for that. That's called grace. That's called the grace of God. And it's the grace of God to remind us again that our lives do not have to be perfect to experience God's blessing. If, if that was the case, and if the Bible did not show us an honest revelation of people in Scripture, Abrahams and Isaacs and Jacob and David and Moses and, and people, if it didn't give us an honest picture of people in the Bible who the Lord blessed, and you, we'd be really depressed because we would think, man, well, if I'm not perfect and, and like them, God will never bless my life. He'll never prosper me. You know, the Bible tells us that it is the Lord who prospers us, that the blessing of the Lord, Proverbs 10 says, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. You know, it's God's prerogative. God can bless who he wills. And to experience the grace of God simply means to experience God's blessing and God's favor without meriting it, without doing something whereby God deserve or we deserve it from God, that God is just a gracious God. He's the God of all grace. And at times, God will bless simply because of who he is, not because of what we've done or, or what we deserve. And here, Isaac, he's experiencing God's blessing, and it's just a tremendous picture of the grace of God. Again, this was a man who loved the Lord. Yeah, he, he fumbled. He made some mistakes. But he ultimately loved the Lord, and God's blessing was upon his life in a, a special way as a result of that. Verse 15 says, Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells, which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Again, because God's hand was upon his life. God was prospering and blessing him, and they saw the evidence of God's presence in his life. There was a sense of, of they kind of feared him. There was a level of respect and reverence where they kind of felt like, listen, we, you, know, you make us nervous because it's evident that God is with you in a way he's not with us. So they're trying to kind of push him out of their land now because of this sense of concern over the evidence of God's hand upon his life. And it tells us in history prior to this time that the Philistines, verse 15, they had stopped up some of the wells which Abraham had dug in years past. Now, you know as well as I do, in a culture like that, you know, a Mideastern culture over there, very arid, desert-like, water is a precious, precious commodity, an extremely precious commodity. So when you're stopping up wells... Either you are completely foolish and irresponsible, or what you're trying to do is drive away everyone else from a territory so that you can take the territory for yourself. This is our turf. So we're going to do things to make sure we let you know it's our turf. And so we're going to guard our turf, and we're going to stop up these wells so that hopefully you'll move out of the area or you'll go a different direction. One of two things. Either, again, you just have no regard for the value of things, or both maybe, or you're really trying to preserve your territory and make people want to get away so you stop up those wells so that they, they move on to somewhere else. Well, this had happened. They had kind of filled, backfilled all of these wells that Abraham had dug that were his wells. The land belonged to him, and they were wells that he had dug as a mark of his, in a sense, property that God had given that territory to him by promise. And verse 17 says, Isaac then departs and dwells in the valley of Gerar. And then verse 18 says, And Isaac, notice, dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he called them by the names which his father had called them. So at some point Isaac, 
he sort of begins this program or process, whatever you want to call it, of trying to sort of reopen these old wells that were valuable and precious. He tries to reopen these old wells that his father before him had dug to reopen them and to let the value and the purpose of what they once represented come back to life again and that they would bring benefit to himself and to those around. So he now begins to go around and try and reopen these wells as an indication that he has the right to do that. He calls them by the same name his father Abraham had. So he calls the wells by the same name. He takes the time. He's the one after they backfill them all, who's putting his back into the labor, who's trying to uncover and redig out these wells so that the source of water that's there again can bring refreshment and can bring you know benefit to those who are around in that area. So he's trying to reopen these old wells. And, and I think of, as I look at this, what a beautiful thing, what a beautiful picture. You know, how many times in the Bible do we see on occasion places like John chapter 4 where Jesus meets the woman at the well there and they begin to talk about living water and, and how many times we see water in the Bible as a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus talks about, you know, that you know, I'll give you living water to drink so that you'll never thirst again. And he says, he who believes in me out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. And then John adds the commentary, John chapter 7, where, where it says, and this Jesus was speaking of the Spirit. And many a times we see water in the Bible as a picture of the work and the ministry of the Spirit. And, he, and here, what a beautiful thing. Here is this man who sees wells that have been filled back in, disregarded, and filled in and wasted. And he says, you know what we need? We need to reopen those old wells again. Those things that we once had that were so beneficial and refreshing, we need to reopen those things. And I can't help but to think that how many times that can be the beginning of the catalyst of a real wonderful work of God's Spirit when, when somebody says, you know what, all these old wells that we've stopped up and we've just disregarded, we need to reopen the old wells again. That the refreshing and the, the power and the ministry of God's Spirit, you know, opening up again the well of the value of God's Word and the redemption of Jesus Christ and the cross and, and blood and repentance and sacrifice and all these things that, you know, we kind of have in many ways disregarded even in the church today, that we, hey, we need to reopen those old wells. No, we don't need new wells. We need to reopen the old wells. The things that were once the foundational tenets of our faith and that the ministry of the Spirit really worked powerfully through. And just a beautiful picture, this effort here to reopen up these old wells. But of course, when we do that, there will always be opposition. Verse 19 says, And Isaac's servants dug in the valley, and then they found a well of running water, so an artesian spring. Now, one thing to find stable water, but to find an artesian well or an artesian spring like this this was, wow. I mean, this was a precious, precious commodity they had just discovered. Verse 20, But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. All of a sudden, now they're interested in it. He digs the well. He, you know, he does the work and sees the value and the deep need for this well. And all of a sudden, once they find it, they hey, that's ours. We wanted that. The water is ours. So he called the name of that well Essek. Uh, which basically uh, speaks of the term quarrel. He calls that the quarrel well because they quarreled with him. And then they dug another well, and so they quarreled over that one also. So he called that one's name Sitna, which means uh, enmity or opposition. Verse 22, And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over that, so finally they gave up, continuing to pursue and take everything that he was trying to do. They didn't quarrel over that one, so he called its name Rehoboth, which basically means spaciousness or enlargement of territory. There's some room, the idea is, in the Hebrew. So he called its name spaciousness because he said, verse 22, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Again, I, I love the I love the heart of Isaac represented here. I mean, talk about somebody of, of you know a man of faith and maturity and understanding the promises of God and having a measure of security in that. 
you know, here he has this thing on his heart to reopen the wells and he sees the need for it and he steps into it and he begins to put the effort into it. And every time he's trying, you know, trying to, to make it happen, he, he, he uncovers the first well. And says, hey, we, that's our well. We want that well. That, that, that's ours. That's our turf. That's our turf. And he says, okay, moves on. Goes back to the same thing again in a different territory. Starts to do it again. Hey, that, that's ours. We want that one too. That's our turf. Okay, take your turn. <laughs> Moves on again in his mature. Again, keep in mind too, whose wells were these really? They were Isaac's. These, by the promise of God, these were Isaac's wells. These, these, he inherited this pr- promise as the son of Abraham. His father had created these wells. He was there under the the authority, in a sense, and, and the promise of God being upon what he was doing. He wasn't going to try to take something that wasn't his. By God's decree, this was his, really. But yet, you don't see him striving over it. You don't see him fighting over it. Just this, this is a picture of a life of faith. The life of faith doesn't strive. It doesn't strive. It doesn't need to strive because it understands, look, God's in control. God's in control. And it doesn't matter what people do or people don't do. Ultimately, God is going to do what God's going to do. And a life of faith doesn't scheme. You know, the whole next chapter will be an evidence of acting in the flesh and scheming and manipulating and trying to make things happen on their own. And Isaac here, such a stellar example, he just he just keeps moving on. And eventually he gets to a spot where finally they give up. And, they, okay, he finally gets far enough away, wherever it is, that they say, okay, we've taken enough for ourselves and he's like, whatever you want. He just finally finds a spot where he digs a well. This time they don't come and fight and try and take it away from him and say, hey, we want that territory or that well as well. And he finally says, great, he says. We're going to call this one spaciousness. Or finally, the Lord's given us some room, he says. The Lord has made room for us, and now we can begin to bear fruit for him. We've created some space, and now he says we can begin to experience God's fruitfulness because the Lord has made room for us without others wanting to kind of, again, croach upon what he was trying to do in the territory. This is a great attitude. Not contentious, not striving, a peacemaker, just moving, in a sense, to wherever he needed to go to continue to follow in God's plan for his life. Verse 23, And then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night, saying, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. And again, right after this happens, what does the Lord do? He appears to him again. And the Lord speaks to him and he reassures him again. And if Isaac is anything just like you and I, he's a man of flesh. He, you know, He's a man who loves the Lord and he walks by faith, but yet he's a man of flesh. And and. What's he just done? He's kind of walked away from a couple potential things, and and maybe he's second guessing and thinking, oh man, you know, maybe I was a little too passive there. Maybe I should have fought a little harder. It's my turf. Those are my wells. What are you, do? you know? Maybe I should have got contentious and taken a stand for for God. You know, what what are you doing? And maybe he's thinking, wait a minute, I'm, I might have, oh my goodness, I might have passed up God's opportunity. Now I'm going to miss God's blessing, and somebody else is going to steal my blessing and and take. And, and maybe he's struggling with that. And the Lord appears to him, and he says, "You know what, Isaac? Don't fear. I'm with you, and I'm going to bless you. I'm with you, and I'm going to bless you. And, and I think sometimes in our lives, you know, the reason why sometimes we hold on to things with such a tight grip." is because we're afraid that if we don't, that somehow God won't take care of us. Listen, can I encourage you? Trust the Lord. Keep an open hand on things. So what if somebody cuts in or takes away? You know, ultimately, we're going to see Jacob you know, encounter his biggest match in Laban. And, and I love the story with, with Jacob and Laban. It says that Laban changes Jacob's wages ten times, and the Lord doesn't allow him to hurt him. And you know what? I, I think there's something to be said at times for realizing, you know what? I don't have to strive. I don't have to. I can just trust the Lord. And don't let fear make you react wrongly and make you grab a hold of things and be territorial and hold on to things and have to fight people over things. Look, let it go. Let it go. The Lord says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. 
I can bless you. It doesn't matter what anyone does or doesn't do or where you get pushed off to. He says, I'm still with you. Again, look, they took the well from you. Great. Then I'll move with you to the next well. He's saying, Isaac, I'm, I'm just going to, wherever you go, I'm going with you. And he says, I'm with you, Isaac. I will bless you. I'll still multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. In verse 25, so he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And Isaac's servants dug a well. Again, these guys just seem to have that as their regular practice. But again, verse 25, like his father Abraham, building an altar, calling on the Lord. The Lord appears to him and speaks to him. And the natural response, again, builds an altar. He begins to call upon the name of the Lord in worship and prayer. Verse 26, and then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army, and Isaac said to him, why have you come to me since you hate me, he says, and you sent me away from you. Again, what were they coming to him for? Were they looking to make an alliance and a partnership now? All of a sudden they, they realize, hey, maybe we shouldn't have drove you away and, and we should have stood you know, in partnership. Or connect. He says, well, how come you come to me? I thought you hate me. You sent me away from you. Uh, and they say to him, verse 28, we have certainly seen, interesting, that the Lord is with you. Didn't say it apparently, but they, we've seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant. That is a, you know, a, a, a non-aggression pact they're asking for here, you know, a treaty, a partnership between them and Isaac. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you. Remember, we didn't harm you when you were in our land and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away, but we did it in peace. And verse 29, and you are now the blessed of the Lord. Again, look, the Lord ultimately honored his testimony. And again, listen, do what's right and let the Lord honor his testimony in your life. At the end of the day, don't do what works, do what's right. When you're faced with that decision of, hey, what do I need to do to make it work out for myself? Don't fall prey to that. Instead, Lord, what do I need to do to do the right thing? What would honor you, Jesus? What would honor you in the way I respond to my spouse right now in the situation? Not what works to make me right in the situation. No, Lord, what's right? And the Lord will honor that. When you're faced with the work situation, you know, what do I do to make it work out best for me? No, 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 no what's right. Just do what's right and let the Lord's testimony ultimately be the thing that shines forth. God will bless obedience. God will bless when we do the right thing. And ultimately, he will demonstrate, as again, here they come back and they say to him, we realize that the Lord is with you and you are the blessed of the Lord. And kind of the shame came upon their own heads, as many times the Lord calls us things in time to turn around and to happen that way. Verse 30, so he made them a feast. Again, he was very gracious. He I told you so. Or, you know, he, just, he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, and they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servant came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So they continued to discover more uh, water sources and God's hand was upon their efforts. Verse 33, so he called it Sheba and therefore the name of that city is Beersheba, literally the, the well of, of oaths the idea is. And verse 34, we get this little insertion which kind of really merges into the next chapter, but we'll, we'll look at it regarding Esau, his brother, uh, the brother of Jacob, excuse me. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basemath, quite an interesting name, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and verse 35, interesting verse here, and these the idea of wives of Esau, they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. They were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah, again, they had these two sons, Jacob and Esau. We'll begin to really pick up their story more as we move now to the chapters ahead. 
But again, Esau, we continue to see a representation of what he was really like and how indeed he was a man who lived according to the flesh, according to his sinful nature. And now we see, again, he knows how his father got his wife. He knows mom and dad. How did mom and dad get together? There was a very, a very you know, selective, patient, important process of Isaac, his father, waiting for God to go and to get a right bride for him, the right woman at the right time, and he waited until she was brought into his life. And he's got this incredible example in his parents, incredible example. But yet Esau, unfortunately, being a man, again, who just lives after appetite and, and his own sensual indulgences, it says he marries these two pagan women. Though he has a godly lineage, it says that he marries these two women who were Hittite women. In verse 35, any parent who has children in the Lord, who decide to marry children who don't know the Lord, uh, can understand what this would be. And they became the wives a grief of mind to mom and dad. You know, any parent understands that. You know, the, these daughters are married, they're brought into the family, they care nothing of the things of God, and, and they care nothing of, of the ways of God, and it says that they became a grief of mind to mom and dad. They just, oh my goodness, you know, and, 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 and what a sad thing. And, and it's just a reminder to us as well. Listen, if, if you're here tonight and you still have children who aren't married, pray, pray. And be involved in the process because you know, you know, somebody being brought in the family has a powerful effect upon the dynamic of the family. And, and, and you can have somebody brought into the family that is a blessing. And, and oh, praise the, this, you know, this daughter or this, you know, daughter-in-law or son-in-law, whatever that's brought. Oh, this is such a blessing or the exact opposite can happen to what happens here. And, you know, boy, what a great exhortation and reminder for us that we don't experience the same thing, that we would pray for our kids, that we'd be involved in their lives, that we would encourage them and instruct them of the importance of marriage relationships, and that we would, as much as possible, as God allows us, be intimately involved and not just be totally hands-off. Hey, it's your choice. Marry who you want. I understand in the way it is, but realize, guess what? We, we, when you get married, you get the whole family along with it, and and and, and it, it changes the Thanksgiving dynamic. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Christmas Eve will never be the same, you know, depending upon who comes into that family. So, valuable lessons. You know, let, let's just stop here tonight. Next chapter obviously takes us into a whole different narrative. Let, let's pray. And can we do a final song? We have time to do a final song. Dave, you mind? Father, thank you for uh, this portion of Scripture and, again, this really one chapter that we have of Isaac's life and to see things about him as a man and what you did in his life, Lord, his successes and his failures, and, Lord, your hand being upon his life. And, Lord, that which we've studied even in this 26th chapter, we pray you'd keep it in our hearts and minds and that it could be for us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path as we walk out this week in front of us in the days ahead. And we ask for your help in the week in front of us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.